Hello everyone, come on in. I always, we always, uh, we just, just kind of kill some time here to let the people come into the to the room. Thank you for coming. What a beautiful, gorgeous day in the Midwest it was today. Um, we have a great, great person with us this evening, Robin O'Brien. Uh, we're going to do something a little different tonight, folks. Um, Robin is going to do some guest hosting for me and the podcast because what I want to do, I want to get a wider variety, a bigger net of people, so to speak. So Robin knows a lot of people and she can tap into different parts of this regenerative movement, let's call it. And, you know, this is kind of a, a, a crack in a session that Robin is actually going to interview me. So guest host robin how you doing well it's nice to see you rick um and thank you and yes it has been an absolutely beautiful day in colorado and i was just walking the dog and thinking it is really the time that the trees show off like it is just oh, yeah. they are showing off big time i don't know about you is that how it feels yeah. out there oh yeah we've got uh we've got the yellows the oranges all those colors yeah and it's just you know, breathtaking and it's such an incredibly poignant reminder, you know? It's nice, you know, I'd like, um, you like to go vacation in maybe warm weather or, or maybe snow ski, but you know, it, it really is nice to live where you have the four seasons, totally. you know, spring, summer, fall, winter. Now winter, uh, I'm getting kind of that age where I could kind of same. skip the winter part. Same, I'm totally the same. And Colorado has a long one, but yeah, I grew up in Houston and we didn't have four seasons. Everything was just hot, a little bit less hot and hot again. Yeah. And, um, you know, Colorado, it is absolutely stunningly beautiful. And that was my thought today when I was walking the dogs, I was like, you know, we just kind of take for granted that these things are here all the time doing the work. And then in the autumn, they just, they're there to remind us, you know, um, yeah. I think that's probably pretty consistent, but I'm, I'm excited to be um, turning the tables a little bit here tonight. Yeah. Yeah. And um, I appreciate the trust that's in that because um, I know how it, it feels to sit on the other side of the table. But sure. I think your story is so compelling, Rick. And, you know, I find that I share it with a lot of people um, as this movement is growing and it can be with other farmers, young farmers, older farmers. It can be with the partners that we have at Replant, you know, in the food industry, these different multinationals that are trying to figure it out. Everybody's trying to figure it out right now. And I think that requires um, thought leadership on, on those of us who are kind of earlier to this. It requires um, putting on our hats as educators, yeah. as collaborators, as mentors. And I think you manage that, you know, at least from the outside, um, you manage that beautifully. Yeah, well, thank you. Um, it's not, you know, and I got to be careful, Robin, because it's sometimes I come off as, as everything is is perfect and and really and it's not it, it's, it's not and it, I and I think yeah I'm really glad you're saying that because this conference I was just at I was like wow it felt a little bit too backslappy you know what I mean like yeah. and I was like we're we are not even close to there yet no and you know I, I've been doing more of that I've got I've got I've got people like Deanna Lazinski who's on almost every time and she keeps me kind of in the straight and narrow which is fine I need that you know, we had to do a little bit of tillage this year. I don't like that, but sometimes you have to do things to to combat another problem, and that problem was a, a noxious weed, and we can't let those just go crazy. So, you know, and, you know, it's like, you know, it's, the way the year has gone, 
if if you were looking on the outside looking in you'd think this guy this guy's wacko he, he has lost it he's lost it because his fields don't look like they ought to look like okay but now let's put it in context when we came out of the fall last fall i felt really good about things we had planted cover crop it went in beautiful we had moisture and they grew and they went dormant but then we had a, a really, really hard winter. And I've never had this happen before, Robin, but we had the cover crop winter kill. So we oh, wow. came into the growing season, usually we want 10 to, to 12,000 pounds of biomass. We had less than 2,000. Yeah. So we have no weed suppression, we have nothing. Right. So we changed the whole, the whole thing the whole formula changed. We just changed it all. And instead of row, you know, we, we, we have 20 inch row spacing corn planters and we usually row our beans. We did away with that and we pulled the drill out, the air seeder, and we went to seven and a half inch spacing on real high density rates of soybeans, trying to get the beans to be the canopy to suppress the weeds. Well, yep. it worked really good until August. Then the rains came in August and the foxtail exploded. Mm -hmm. So now when you drive by our fields, you're like, what, what's going on? But yeah. if you would stop and, and let me give you that five minute elevator pitch. And then when you see that we, uh, the, some of the yields that we can achieve in that, in that situation, it's okay it's going to work out just fine. Yeah. And I think, you know, again, it's sort of like there's been a conditioning. We're all unlearning these behaviors in a lot of ways and the conditioning yeah. of, sort of this one size fits all mentality. And, you know, what you're describing is it's both the art and the science of yeah. this dance with mother nature. And it's something that, you know, I'm really focused on right now because so much in the work that I do in partnerships, you know, it's people want to sort of like put it in a spreadsheet and make it this really scientific formula. And that's really valuable. Yeah. And you also have to understand the art of relationships. And it's the same thing here. Like there is a science to the soil and there's an art to the soil. And I think, you know, that's where the depth of the experience that you bring, um, the knowledge that you bring, the fact that you knew to do that, the fact that you could see that that was happening and, you know, you weren't just going to like totally lose your head over the whole thing. Yeah. And I think that yeah. there, you know, again, so there's a science to this transition and there's also an art to this transition. And then also yeah. what you're also touching on is the very, the very human component of it. Um, and that, you know, it, your field is going to look different. And we hear that consistently from a lot of different crops that are transitioning to regenerative. The almond industry, for example, they are so used to what is called a clean floor. And part of the pride of being an almond grower for however many years was that you just had this like impeccably clean yeah. floor. I mean, that's that is terrible for water ret retention and everything else, but like they were conditioned into that. So there's a lot of unlearning that's happening in the industry as they realize you know, the best thing they can be doing for their yield, for their water conservation, water infiltration, for the next, for generational security is actually putting something down on that floor, yeah. you know? And so there's, there's, there's unlearning as we are also learning. And that's exactly what you're talking about. Yeah. And you know, Robin, that's hard for a, an operation to just say, you know what, we got to do something different because it's no different. An almond grower is no different than a corn and soybean grower or a wheat grower. You've right. got that heritage of how it was done. You you told your you dad, 
dad and yeah. Yeah. Yep. And and you're not and you know, we have to be so careful not to offend that because that's a heritage that's that's deep, deep right. rooted in the family, you know. That's not what we're all about. We're about trying to show you something to add to that. Maybe make a little change today that turns into something bigger tomorrow. Well, I think that's a really important point, Rick, because I think, you know, unfortunately, as a country, we get into this sort of polarized, like it's either or, you gotta pick one side or the other. Yeah. And that is not the case here. It is both and, you know, and I think for any real change to happen at scale, which we know in agriculture, there's an enormous opportunity to scale these solutions. It is integrating these practices in. It's not saying you got to do either or, and it's not this punishing. It's not your shame. Yeah. It's, you know, it's like, how can you be more additive in these practices that are restorative to soil health? Yeah. And then yeah. I think, you know, what your, your story is just so compelling because um, none of this works if the economics don't work. So, right. you know, it's like, you can have people like me talking about it all day long, but if the math and the finances don't work on the farm, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter how right. great it sounds. Um, and so, you know, I think one of the most compelling pieces of data that you've shared, and I would love to sort of go back to the beginning a little bit, because if somebody's listening and like, okay, I'm thinking about this and, mm -hmm. you know, but in the beginning, you said there were 7,000 acres. And as you made that transition in the first year alone, you saved about half a million bucks on the chemical input. Yeah. Walk, yeah. walk us through that a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. See what, what the timing is everything when, when I, I've been blessed, I've been so blessed in my whole life with my wife and, and children and my, my father, my grandpa, I mean, everybody, okay? And there's certain people that come along your journey like you and, and people like Dr. Aaron Silva. Dr. Aaron Silva from the University of Wisconsin taught me how to use a mechanical roller crimper that then, that was my step right there to take me into the comfort zone to do organic with no chemistry. It was that right there. So we're starting to now reduce inputs, you know, way back, I don't know, 12, 12 years ago, we're starting to reduce inputs, okay? And like I always tell everyone, and I even said this at the Senate, or I'm sorry, the House hearing when I testified in front of Congress, I told them the farm was the most profitable when we decreased inputs by 60% and we were 100% cover crop and 100% no-till. That right there, if you did that, 60% reduction of inputs across the United States, it would, Robin, it'd be huge. Yeah, but you know, I'm, I'm gonna circle back to this because you know there's some people that don't want you guys reducing those inputs. Oh yeah. The guys I mean, sell the inputs, you know? Yeah. Oh, I know. So, you know, it's like there's real headwind here. And it's, you know, I'm I'm on the business side of things. And it let's say I was on the board of one of those chemical input companies, you know, they're gonna try really hard to be like, it's not gonna work, it's not gonna work, it's not gonna work. You're risking the farm. And it's, I, you're telling me the exact opposite. What actually doesn't work, what's risking the farm? Are the chemical inputs because right. it's risking the 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 resiliency of the farm itself and the soil health yeah. and it's also you know risking the financial security of the farmer himself and your family and everything else and so um you know there really there will be some opposition to this kind of messaging and it's been interesting to talk to some of those chemical input companies because um just as the food industry sort of woke up and said oh wow we're selling a bunch of processed junk and 
we should probably start to think about a portfolio that's better for you and free from yeah. allergens or you know whatever it's going to be. Yeah. That same opportunity actually is presentable to the input companies and to step back and say, okay, for the last however many decades we've been selling chemical inputs, what would it look like to take the scale and operations of that company and actually start to offer biological inputs? And I think, you know, truly, I mean, that sounds pretty radical to people that are hardcore and going to be polarized and either oaring this whole thing and taking one side or the other. That's actually going to be what gets us there. So if I were one of the chemical input guys listening to you, I'd say, okay, this guy knows what to do. And, you know, as we reduce chemical inputs, we will be adding biological inputs. So how can they participate on that side and build out that side of their portfolio? Yeah, I totally agree. I, you know, I would seek out those people that are that are doing and and making this happen and say because see that that's what this is what the retail plant did that is in my neighborhood they came to me and they said Rick we see that you're moving away from from our our company what can we do as a retail and when I say retail Robin what I mean by a retail plant is that is the the place in the country that has the anhydrous tanks they sell the right. chemicals they sell the fertilizer it's the right service. and you probably were like a really loyal customer a lot of revenue yeah. for them over oh, a lot of years millions of dollars a year right and, and it goes to zero and right. they came to me and they said rick we see you changing how can we get involved what do we need to do different to get involved and not fall behind in this right and the first answer was buy buy a no-till drill and lease a tractor and put a person in the seat and go out and and tell the farmer in your in your region look first year out we'll do the drilling for free you buy the cover crop seed you drill it for free just so you can get started and then you start to grow a a cover crop company within your retail company of exactly of exactly inputs. Yeah, because Robin, it doesn't you, you and I both know you're not going to reach everybody. You are no. not. So you're going to have part of your group that's that's going to say, nope, I'm staying where I'm at. Just sell me the fertilizer and away I'm going to go. That's fine. Right. But then let's nurture this other side and give them those options to get into this easier. Well, no. and I think about like, I think about the retailers. So all of our grocery stores, you know, I mean, 10 years ago, it was just kind of conventional grocery and that's all any of us shop for. And then slowly people started asking for different products. And now, you know, Costco, Walmart, they all have these organic lines inside yeah. those companies. Yeah. And those, those lines have grown. I mean, when, when Kroger decided to introduce their private label, their, you know, organic simple truth label, it went zero to a billion in revenue in a two-year period. So additive that was 100 additive to kroger's bottom line and you know they weren't afraid it was going to cannibalize because probably like you and me like most people if they're in the grocery store they're buying some of everything you know um and so you know i think that's really the same opportunity here and the farmers can inform that portfolio i'm so glad that they came to you because it's like who knows it better than you guys and what did you see because i promise that you didn't just reduce chemical inputs you had to you were reducing chemical inputs and realizing all these other things you had to add. And that's the opportunity, you know, that's the opportunity. Yeah. And, you know, sometimes, well, let me go back to another thought I had there just a moment ago. Um, 
when I was in DC, I got to, to speak with uh, Chief Cosby, the head of USDA and RCS. I got to speak with him for about an hour. Great guy. I'm gonna. I'm trying to get him on the podcast. He is a great guy, and um, you know, I suggested to him. I said, take some of this money that you've gotten from the 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 whatever the IRA the is it IRA or IRA the yeah yeah the Relief Act, and why don't we then get a roller crimper? that would be maybe not in every county, but figure out what counties work together, like here it's Fountain and Warren or Warren and Benton, by one roller and, and it's at the, the USDA office for rent at a cheap price and give that availability to that farmer so then when they listen to people like me talk, they then can go to the USDA play or FSA or whatever, and that's yeah that yeah happen because people don't want to invest in something that may not be something they're going to use so give them an opportunity to, to check it out first yeah i mean I, as i think i think about like anything that we've introduced like that you know like there has been this sort of try it before you buy it model um, and, you know, just listening to you, I mean, it could be through the USDA, it could also be through some industrious 30 year old that decides, you know, they're going to figure out how to finance this equipment and run a leasing model. Um, you know, the, the, the airline industry is a great example of an industry that has to buy these assets and then lease them back, you know, so it's like the whole model of that. Sorry, Ollie has plenty to say about this. The whole model of like, um, calling it an asset sale lease back, you know? Um, I mean, there really is an opportunity here. And I think consistently what we're hearing at Replant is that um, the equipment is part of the obstruction. Like the cost of the equipment is just too exorbitant. So can you touch on that? Yeah. Um, but you know, here's the way, again, I'm just gonna tell you, and I, I, wanna, I wanna respond to Deanna. Thank you, Deanna. I, I, I respect what you do up there too so much. Thank you so much for listening. Um, okay, I want to tell you about our journey then, and then that's going to be my the way I'm going to answer your question. Because I get asked this all the time. When you get to a point where you are convinced that no-till is the way to go, then the first thing you do is sell all your tillage equipment because it does two things now. It generates the cash that you need to buy the equipment you're talking about and it takes away the desire to do any more tillage because if you don't have the equipment sitting out back, you can't go out and do the tillage. Now you can still call your neighbor and get some tillage done, I, I get that. But the point here is it's a mind thing. You've got to be able to overcome that we always go out and do x or y or whatever no, i mean you're talking about like getting rid of the temptation really is what you're talking about like it's too easy if the equipment's right there you're like oh this isn't working i'm just gonna till yeah. yeah yeah because bob down the road's working ground so by golly we gotta be working ground yeah you know? so you take all that and that's what we did we took, we took, uh, okay, but wait, stop a little bit. Cause I mean, like that's decades of conditioning, watching your dad, you know, like, so there's a lot yeah. that's in there. So for you to just stop, you know, it sounds easy when you say it, but I think like 
the internal wrestling that probably went with that a little bit. Um, how did, how talk a little bit about that? Because yeah. I think, you know, that's going to feel familiar to people like that sounds great, Rick, but like, God, how'd you yeah. actually do it? It's hard. It's hard because the first time that we really went widespread no-till corn, because see, corn is different than soybeans or wheat. Corn does not like compaction, and everyone thinks they don't have compaction, but you do have compaction. No matter how well you take care of your farm and try to do the best you can, there's compaction out there. That was probably the hardest thing for me to over, overcome because I could see it in the field. You could see the corn, it was like this because it was real nice and tall where there was no tractor traffic and where there was tractor traffic, it was, it was shorter and didn't put on as good an ear. So instantly you're now comparing your field to your neighbors because you're just now getting into this. And yeah. you're like, oh my gosh, I, what do you, what, what's, what have I done? And what's everybody saying about it? Yeah. Yeah. It's the competitiveness. I mean, exactly. we're, humans. It's, we're human. So that was hard. That was hard. But then when, when, and I don't, I don't like to talk about yield. I don't talk about yield very often because yield is a, I think that's the way we measure a farmer's success and that that's not the right way to measure their success. Right. I agree. But, but you know, when you start to run the combine across the field, you can see, boy, this is this pat. Look at that monitor. You know, it's going like this. And then you come right over here where you have the compaction and it goes like this. But guess what? At the end of the day, when the field averaged out, it was OK. It was yeah. OK. We were able to move on. You learn something from that. So now you need a really good cover crop cocktail package that has a lot of diversity in it, not only plant diversity, but root diversity. So you need deep tap running, deep drilling uh, species. You need mm -hmm. species that go down and do intermediate rooting. And then you need the species that's like clovers that stay up on top and just do all their work in that top four inches or so. Okay, so, so stop. we're stopping for a minute. So, you know, in the initial part, really what's really what you're talking about here is is community yeah. so you need support like you need that that friend or you know whoever it is like when you're having a when you're kind of freaking out on something that you're like oh my god and they talk you back from the edge you need that person so you need that that sense of community so that's going to be one thing and um i'm sure anybody that's listening to this would trust that you know they can reach out to you and yeah. you know oh my god rick I'm, I'm i'm seeing this you know help help me come back from the edge mm -hmm. um and then you know the second piece is the actual um inputs themselves so you know understanding the cover the cover cropping and then i think the third piece that you've also touched on is this this conditioning that has been in and around every part of agriculture that the focus needs to be yield. Mm -hmm. And a lot of farmers we are hearing from is like, I was told yield, 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 yield. And, and that while everybody was focusing up here on yield, like profitability just tanked, debt levels skyrocketed. So it's like, what am I focusing on? You know, and like none of, you've got to make all of these things balanced. So um, to step back and say, okay, you know, we've all been conditioned to focus on yield. Let's also look at profitability. Let's look at, you know, the cost of inputs. Um, so speak a little bit about that, because I think it was that that yield thing is simple. It's a talking point, yeah. but it's like it's like one 
quotient in an equation and you've got all these other pieces that are equally as important for a farm to work. That's right. Now, I know yield is part of the, the calculation for ROI. I know that. But that's where it ends with me, okay? Because it's all about what you just said. It's about profitability. It's no different than any other business in the world. Right, right. Make a million cars and not make any money. They put out of business in a year. But well, and your kid, and the kids are the kids are like, well, I don't want to do that. You know, if a kid has a choice between, you know, yeah. again, so I mean, we have a real generational security problem. You've got the younger generation that's like, I don't know if I want to step into this. I mean, we haven't created a yeah. business model that that looks appealing and lucrative to them. Because we this focus solely on yield has ignored the profitability of the farmer. Yeah, I know, and and I think I think one of the things that's really really drives this home is when you talk to the folks. And I've had a lot of these these soil scientists on this podcast. This is a young podcast, yeah. and I've had several soil scientists, and they all are going in the same direction we have to build the biology that's in the ground we have to stop scorching the ground with the salts and the acids and all these things so i think that's got to be part of the teaching process to the farmer because they have to understand why we're asking them to go from point a to point b you can't just say do it you've got to explain why it's going to help them to do this move from a to b you know, this is what I, you know, my wife always says I'm so anal about giving directions to go somewhere, but I want to make sure they get there the first time, you know, go to the, go to the brown building and turn left and then count to three. And, you know, I mean, it's, it's crazy how I do that stuff, but I want to make sure that they've got the proper instructions to get to the destination they want to get to. Well, because yeah. And I, I hear you on that because you don't know how many shots you got with somebody, you know, yeah, one. you got one. And it's uh, like, in my opinion, it has to happen. The first time they try this, that has to work for them because right. I've heard every excuse there is. And they're going to say the same. I told you, Rick, I told you we live too far North. I told you it gets too cold, whatever. I've heard it all. So we have to take those excuses away and do it this way now i i had an idea the other day that just popped into my head and you're going to be a very good one to have this discussion with we're going to do it right now robin we need to figure out how to get money behind what i'm getting ready to suggest let's call it the 40 acre challenge and you take 40 acres out of a farmer's farm or his his take a field out of his farm and you cut it in half and you let him do the 20 acres his way and you do 20 acres our way and you see at the end of the day what is the net dollars made on those acres and we will make up the difference on that 20 if their way beats us how about that I think that's kind of like, I mean, it's, it's like the PepsiCo challenge, you know, it's like, bring it on. We got to do something like this. And I think that kind of data and the visual that would accompany something like that and the on-farm education that's happening in real time, you know, the, as I listen to you, I'm like, whoo, the most expensive part of that model is going to be the labor, you know, getting them all out to those 20 acres. But, but Robin, there's no way 
we'll ever have to pay any money out. There's no way because we're going to take two or three or four passes of tillage out. We're going to have some cover crop in there and we're going to yield just as good or better than what they're doing in their system. So we got to think about how to, how to make that work. And because see, the, the thing that people always say is, well, Robin, you don't have any skin in the game. So yeah. Yeah. Well, what pain I'm talking, okay, okay, fine. We're going we're gonna to stop that. Here's the 40 acre challenge. Here's our skin in the game. Let's go. Who, who wants to sign up? I think it's a great idea. I really do think it's a great idea because I think it just proves it proves the model in real time on yeah. that piece of land. Yeah. And it's and 20 think, acres. It's 20 yeah. acres. It's not going to kill anybody. Right. Right. Yeah. So I'm in. I'll help you find it. We'll find the financing for that. You know, yeah, the other thing I want to do, the other thing I want to do, because I hear you on the competition piece and people are competitive, but it's like, there should be a state by state competition here, you know, and I feel like, you know, get the governor of Colorado, the governor of Indiana, let's get these governors behind this. Yeah. And let's start to like, look at the metrics that matter, water conservation, you know, water infiltration, water, I mean, water. And, you know, let's look at some of these metrics and make it a state by state competition, you know, yeah. as to who actually can, can improve but, the performance of the land, you know, through these, through these metrics. But I'm going to throw something back at you now then. Okay. This is where, again, you probably know more about this than I do because you're more, you're in touch with a lot of people across the, the whole, the, the whole, whole chain spectrum. Okay. Yep. From farmer to consumer and everybody in between. Okay what are the metrics you just said we need to see let's do a challenge okay what are the metrics robin do we have these figured out you know how are you going to measure measure water infiltration rates in indiana versus water infiltration rates in kansas exactly totally different right which is well, why I think, you know, having it done at the state level recognizes that, you know, you've got different soil tops, you've got different, re I mean, each crop types, you've got these different things. And, um, and I do, I think like what we're waking up to is that this one size fits all mindset doesn't work. No. So this even the 40 acre challenge, it's like, you know, I, I mean, it kind of to push back a little bit on that, it's like, the, the consistency of the challenge works, but then to step back and say, okay, what actually works for the 40 acre challenge in Washington state with a blueberry grower that we happen to know versus, you know, what's gonna work in Idaho with a potato grower, you know? Right. But it's on their farm. You're not comparing that Idaho potato grower to no. a corn grower in Iowa. You no. are doing this on his or her farm. Right. Well, so that's what we do at Replant, though, Rick, because, you know, when we make these loans, the, the terms of the loan and the metrics that we capture are specific to that farm. Yeah. And so, you know, we're not coming at you saying we're going to tell you what to do, because, I mean, that's the dumbest thing ever. You guys are the guys on the farm. So it's like, you know, let's sit down and say, what is that impact metric that you want to capture on this piece of land here in Indiana? Yeah. And then we write that into the term sheet. And again, I think, you know, See, that kind of collaboration, that kind of collaboration is really what has been missing. Yeah. See, and now you're headed somewhere. So now I think you could break the country into eight regions. Maybe I don't think you need 10. I think you could do eight and then you need a leader in each region that then has a committee that just exists exactly what you just said we are going to make so you've got the the high plains region you've got 
a group of six or eight people and they're going to determine based on the knowledge that they have within that region. I don't have any knowledge in the high plains, so I right. shouldn't make any suggestions there. Right. You get those people like Jimmy Emons or whoever out there, Jay Fuhrer, whoever, and you get these people then to say, okay, this, these are the metrics that we're going to abide by in the high plains region. Exactly. Exactly. Totally. Yeah. I mean, wow. and I think, you know, that's that, and, you know, for people that are used to sort of controlling this conversation around ag and especially kind of at the federal level, that's going to, that, that requires them to actually step back, which is also one of the challenges, you know, yeah. is they've got to sort of step back. And, you know, I think about like our secretary of agriculture here in Colorado's first female secretary of ag here in Colorado. She is awesome, you know, yeah. and she has come out of the young farmers coalition. So she's very mindful of this generational security or insecurity, the fact that young people don't want to come into farming. So, um, you know, again, I think to to have it be much more sort of localized, um, it's empowering. It's really empowering. And and you're not going to get, you know, that's another thing I get, but I'm, I'm very fortunate, Robin, because the story I tell apparently goes across many spectrums of farming because next in a couple of weeks, I'm going to Spokane, Washington to talk to the folks out there. There won't be any probably any corn or soybean growers there, but it doesn't matter because right. following the principles of soil health, it's building soil health, it's building human health. But one of the things I always get is, you know, why is this guy from Indiana coming to Kansas to, to talk and tell us, I'm not coming out there to tell you how to farm. I'm coming out there to try and describe to you what the principles of soil health have done for me. Right. And I think they can apply to you and help you. That it's not, so that's that, why- So I, that's what we see. So, you know, for us as a team to partner with different companies across these different crop types, that's exactly what we're seeing is we're seeing emergence, the leadership emergence, you know, yeah. for a crop type. Um, McCain, for example, as a company has done a phenomenal job of creating a regenerative framework. And again, you know, for people to recognize that this is a spectrum that people are moving on, it's not don't, you know, it's don't make the perfect the enemy of the good. What we are actually asking for is 100% participation in these practices around soil health. And, you know, McCain has done a beautiful job with this regenerative yeah. framework. But what's been so interesting to me, which is what you're touching on, is that Driscoll's was like, hey, let's look at what McCain did with potatoes and look at this regenerative framework and think about how can we apply some of these principles to raspberries and strawberries and blueberries? And I think that's the opportunity. And I think what also is exciting right now is like, there's so much room for innovation and leadership and opportunity for people to step in and say, hey, this is how I'm gonna participate from everything from the guy that's gonna lease the equipment you know, to the different kind of education roadshows that you're talking about that are required um, to to really sort of being an expert in a particular area. I mean, you get you can have expertise on the equipment that's needed here, expertise on the inputs that are needed here, expertise on that process. You know, the early the beginning of like when you're reducing those chemical inputs, and that feels like a, probably a pretty scary transition to someone who has only done that for most of their life. Yeah. Um, all of that consulting that's going to be required along the way. These are huge opportunities, you know, and um, for business models and, and participation. Yeah, I, I really, I think about this a lot. I really like the regionalized idea and I wanna comment Claudia and Ludmila, thank you for your comments of, of positivity there, thank you. 
I appreciate that. Those are two folks that are always on to uh, Lou Milas from Ukraine, by the way. Um, uh, yeah, Robin, I just, you know, I, I'll tell you what I'm a little worried about. I'm a little worried that we might run out of gas on this thing because we've really had the foot to the floor for about two years now. And there's going to be some folks that are going to say, I'm just not, I'm not getting it. I'm not seeing it. How come, how come, how come we can't get the community to come together? Cause see, I keep saying that we need a definition and, and then some people say you're right, Rick. And then some people say, no, Rick, you're wrong. Because if you create a definition that excludes something that you didn't think about for the future, then you, you will be out. Well, I get that, but that's what happens in life. You, you have to, you have, we, we've got to get something started, get this regional idea started, get something started so that the General Mills, the Kellogg's, the Driscoll's, the, the, the whoever can have faith that yes, we are moving in the right direction. I mean, I know we're moving in the right direction, but it seems like it's taking a long time to get there. Yeah, and I think, you know, as somebody who sort of, you know, like you said, I mean, it's half the time it's to partners, sometimes farmers, sometimes it's to investors. It's the data, you know, and I think we've been so conditioned around the data on the farm. But if you think yeah. about um, crop insurance, it's just year to year to year. And that's not actually security, you know, that's just year to year to year. So we've sort of got to take off these short-term lens glasses that we have been wearing in agriculture and say, what's actually required here for seven years and 10 years. And I can remember asking you once, like, you know, when you made this transition, that's great news in the first year, you saved half a million bucks on the chemical inputs, but when could you breathe? And I remember you said it was year seven yeah. and that's a long time. That yeah. is a long time. It is, it is. And, and, you know, I mean, with the way, and I'm being ultra conservative and, and actually I'm going to have to redo my sheet because I've changed some other things on the farm. Right now we're saving about $2 million on inputs right now, but it's actually going to go up because I've done some other like epigenetics. I, I've been really, um, that's one of my main focuses yeah. and then uh, biology, you know, hormones, um, stimulants. I mean, we've got to get more of this, this microbial community fired up and, and energized and going. And I know we can, we just got to find those right markers and, and we're gaining every day. Um, but, um, you know, I, I just, I just hope, Rob, I mean, you've been in the, you've seen things like this before you were, you know, sustainable was around for a couple of years. It's not much around anymore, that word. It's all regenerative now. So, you know, what what's going to happen here? Right, right. And I think, you know, there have been, so there are a lot of things that need to happen. And I, I need to lift a little bit of the responsibility off your shoulders, Rick, because um, I see it in friends that have been in this space for a long time where we tend to shoulder all of it. Yeah. And it's, it's not actually all yours to shoulder. And so one of the things I have repeatedly said is you can't fix a broken food system with a broken financial system. And the terms that are being offered to farmers are, are extractive without this concept of regenerative capital in there. So that's one piece. 
Another piece that has come up a lot lately, especially with some of these publicly traded companies, and I was speaking to it because I was frustrated by it, but I actually had a panel of um, you know, supply chain people from the big CPGs um, at a conference last week, and they were frustrated by it, which was pretty interesting. And the frustration is that all these commitments are made, the, all of these press releases go out yep. and there's no teeth in them. Yep. And Wall Street, the bankers, aren't asking any of these companies how they're gonna get there. And the problem I think is because they don't know enough to ask the relevant questions. So while we can talk about how important it is to educate the farmers, we've also really got to educate the capital. That's and right. so you've got, you know, McCain says by 2030, 100% of our supply chain is going to be regenerative. General Mills puts out press releases. Pepsi puts out press releases. And these bankers sitting in New York, mostly, don't even know enough to ask the relevant questions of how are you going to get there? Because those follow-up questions are critical because then you've got General Mills treasurer and CFO saying, oh, shit, I've actually got to invest in this. I'm not it's not all going to be on Rick Clark's shoulders. It's right. you know, it's got to be shouldered literally across the industry. And unfortunately, you know, these brands are putting out these press releases and the, the banks, these bankers don't know enough yet to ask the really important questions of how are you investing in the infrastructure? What, what's going to be required of your supply chain of your growers, you know, equipment wise? What programs are you going to be putting in place in order to ensure that cover cropping is adopted across your supply chain? I mean, programs need to be put in place by these large multinationals who are also like you thinking, how are we going to be participating in financing the cover cropping? How are we going to be participating in financing the equipment that our supply chain needs? And so I think, you know, again, it's sort of how do we up-level this education? And I'm so mindful of the farmers sort of being in the crosshairs at any point in change. You know, I mean, it's just, it's it's super easy and lazy in my opinion to be like, oh, it's the farmers. You know, it's like, mm, I really have a problem with that because I just see how hard you guys work. I see how hard your families work. I see how people take off farms jobs so they get insurance for their families. Like if people understood how hard our farmers work, they would absolutely stop with that. And they would say, what can I do to help? And so I think that's the question that Wall Street needs to be asking is what can I do to help? Because until they get educated on this, they're going to keep shoving and keep extracting these problems down. Well, I think the last I, the last, I saw, and I'm sure this number is not even close now. I believe um, isn't the isn't this regenerative, sustainable industry like 130 trillion dollars now? I mean, it's, yeah, I haven't seen the latest number, but you know, the other number I saw that your friend and my friend Gabe Brown, it's you know, I think three years ago he had something like uh, 50,000 acres that he was managing in regenerative, and now it's at 30 million. You know, yeah. and it's more than the NRCS. So it's crazy. It's happening. Yeah, I understand. We need full support. You know, it's not on the backs of our farmers to do this. No, and and understanding ag has done a nice job. I mean, they they I mean, those guys are on the road all the time, Mm -hmm. but they are dedicated to the cause and and making this work. And and I don't think people understand how unhealthy that is to someone to be on the road sleeping in a hotel and all eating the all the time it's not healthy no I, I i mean that the last time i saw gabe right before covid that was that was exact he said i'm on the road 300 days a year and i'm like you have got to take care of yourself you are way too valuable yeah yeah, 
Yeah. So people need to realize what what pain goes into doing this, and and I most do, but you know, I I, I want to go a little further with what you just. I mean, like BlackRock. I mean, BlackRock right. they get a, they get a black eye all the time, but they've got two humongous regenerative funds. The last I knew, they were each over seven hundred million dollars. These are regenerative funds. They've got BlackRock, so. Right it's there the people are there they understand that this is going to have to happen at some point but robin it it's going to take folks like you and the people you know to real we got to keep we got to keep pushing yeah we got to keep shoving this forward well and i think you know honestly like podcasts like yours are such an important platform where people can come it feels safe they don't feel judged you know, yeah. they don't feel stupid because anytime any of us are stepping into change, you you can feel shame, you can feel stupid, you can feel insufficient. And that, yeah. that immobilizes people. It freezes people. Yeah. We're not. No, no way. I mean, we, we've had several just Q&As with with Rick and and let's just get it all out on the table. And I mean, I don't have any idea where it's going to go. And everyone's at, is fine at the end of the day, and and it's all good because there are no dumb questions. Right, right. Ask them all. Right. Ask it all. Well, because if you think about it, it's the first time we're here, and so you know, yeah, for decades and generations, and you know, fifth and sixth generation farming families, yeah, it's the first time we're here in this crisis, and you know, we were on we were on some strawberry farms a couple weeks ago, and we were literally standing on sand. And I thought, how is this going to work? How's this going to work? You know, and it's, I wish that there was a way for more Americans to get on farm, because when you actually stand on those farms, you feel what the farmer is feeling. Yeah. 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 It's a touchy feely thing. You've got to get down on your hands and knees and scoop up that soil and smell it and feel it. And then you're like, I, you're like becoming a part of the farm, you know, and, and, and that's huge. That That's huge. So um, let's talk. I want to talk a little bit about water because yeah. you know, a lot of my friends, Steve Tucker and some of the other guys, I mean, they're just like, it has just been brutal. The summer yeah. has just been brutal. Um, and, you know, I do think regenerative agriculture is a more resilient water play. So could you talk a little bit about what you've seen there? Yeah. It, there, there, it's, it's, again, this goes back to that heritage of, of, of tilling the soil in the fall until all of your, your corn fodder is buried, okay? It's the same mentality. You've, I don't care if it takes four times, you've got to do that. Well, I want to use that analogy now on the flip side of cover crops in arid environments people always say to me you can't plant cover crops in arid environments because they're going to take what little bit of moisture there is and there won't be anything left for the cash crop well i disagree if you get a wide diversity of cover crop species your chances of success of growing are much greater then when that cover crop is terminated it armors the soil and is now protecting the moisture that is in the profile that is no longer evaporating out to the atmosphere and those cover crops create dew situations you know like in the morning the dew it gets wet out Mm -hmm. all of 
this helps in putting moisture into that profile and then you can start to save some water use in these arid environments. That's how I think about it. We have one pivot on our farm and sometimes that, that's one too many, but one pivot on the farm and I have been able to reduce the use of that pivot by over half because of this armor I'm talking about. Yeah. So instead of turning it 10 times, we turn it four times. And, and that's all the water we need because we've armored the soil, stopped the evaporation, kept the water in the profile, build soil health, build carbon, and, and now create that, that storage tank that's holding all that water for us. And that's what I think about. And I know that's easier said than done. And, and the folks out West and I talk to them, okay, Rick, come on out and let's yeah. just see how we're going to get stuff to grow when it doesn't rain. Right. I, I understand that. I don't know how you're going to combat what's going on West of awesome. Iowa. Yeah. Yeah. Because you have to have rain and Kansas has not had any rain for I don't know how many months and it's hard I, I I know me sitting here is nothing compared to what they're going through out there but I've heard Dr. Christine Jones say where you want to plant multiple species diversity and maybe not all 16 of them will grow but 12 of them will grow and then right next to it is a monoculture and nothing grows so there is something to it uh yes uses less moisture per unit yeah yeah i, I thank you ludmila i totally agree she she substantiated what we were just talking about so but but Robin, I want to go a little different thing on the water. I, I and this is something that people don't much talk about is water quality. If I was a municipality that was needing to get water for my my community, I would deeply care about how the farm ground is being farmed around my water supply. Well, that that's why I asked because it's like this is where policymakers will engage, in my opinion. Yeah. You know, and I think we've spent a ton of airtime on carbon because, you know, the big banks are like, oh, their transaction fees around this whole carbon trading scheme. You know, I mean, that's what the banks are looking at. But it's like none of this works without water. And I think you look at the the drought crisis in, in California, the governor of California should absolutely be figuring out regenerative principles and practices on the farms out there if for no other reason than for the water conservation purposes. You know, and we've seen that with the almond orchards where there's been a 500% increase in water infiltration in that transition to regenerative agriculture. Because like you're saying, you've got, instead of that barren floor, you got this yeah. beautifully vibrant floor that can, healthy soil that can hold water. Um, and to me, you know, you want to talk about like, okay, what's required to really kick this thing at scale. I think it's that data. I think it's around water conservation and I think yeah. it's around water usage. That's really going to be the thing that's going to motivate and engage the policymakers. Yeah, I, I spoke in in August in Sacramento, California, for acres. It was awesome, um, and there was not one corn grower there, and not one soybean grower there. They were all fruits, vegetables, trees, some you know, pistachios, almonds, walnuts, everything. 
grapes for wine, everything. And they were all in total agreement that they all had cover crops growing amongst all their trees. And they figured out some of these folks are even figuring out how to get sheep to graze in these orchards, but yet not destroy the trees. So, I mean, it, they see it. These folks see it. And they are using less water and maintaining the, and, and, and they're actually getting a higher nutrient dense product now because they've, they've way stopped, or maybe they haven't stopped spraying their insecticides, but they've drastically reduced the amount they spray. Yeah. And I mean, I think one of the comments in here in the comment section is, you know, there, there needs to be retraining in academia, you know, and um, I don't know if I told you this, Rick, but I, I, you know, I did my MBA at Rice University in Houston and they asked me to come oh. back as an adjunct professor and I created oh. a class called the new food economy, which touches on all of this. Um, and it's been really interesting to watch it, to watch it take off the number of kids that are enrolling in it this Good. last year was like three times the number we'd had before. And, and I think that there's really this in real environmental concern um, yeah. and recognizing that this presents a solution. And I think, um, you know, the, the news can be so dire and so heavy and the rates of suicide in the farming community are so high, you know, higher than any other industry. A friend sent a text the other day. She's like, I had no idea. And I was like, God, there's just so much that people don't know. Yeah. And, you know, to be able to say like, it is really this dire and, you know, there is a very workable solution here. And your frustration and mine is that that capital isn't moving into it quickly enough. Yeah. And it's, yeah. it's kind of for old school reasons, although the data is not there, but it's like, you know, we're creating this data in real time. How could the data be here? We've never been in a climate crisis like we're in right now. We've never been in a situation quite like we're in right now, you know, where everything on that farm, on every farm, is changing in a way that no one has seen before. Yeah. So, you know, to think about, you know, how we can embrace these principles, um, it is where there's optimism and it is where there's hope. And, you know, as a mother of four, I mean, there are days where my kids sink pretty low, like this is on our watch, you know, what's going to happen, mom. And to be able to say, like, there are these principles that we can pull forward. There are these solutions on the farm. And it's not just on the backs of the farmers that what, what is required here is full participation across all levels of society. So yes, academia is one piece of that. The banking industry really needs to spend some time on these farms. Mm -hmm. Congress, you know, you've done an amazing job, you know, educating members of the house. And I'm so grateful for that. And we were so proud at Replant. We we're like, you know, we, that's Rick. Um, and so I think like you're doing so much. And so, you know, again, for people listening, um, not everybody can be like Rick and go to DC yeah. and present to Congress, but you can do stuff at your local level. And, you know, yeah. I've done a lot, I've participated a lot in local politics around agriculture. I've done a lot um, at the state level here in Colorado around the agriculture. And so that that's that's more accessible and, and that's equally as important. Sure, sure. The good, uh, you know, a little side note there, Robin, on the hearing. I actually got some questions kicked back to me from my testimony because they want in, they want more in depth answers about the testimony. So that's that's great news. That is so great news. Somebody's listening at least in reading. So yeah, well, you um, know what it is probably. I mean, because I think you know a lot of the staff in those different offices are in their twenties. Oh, yeah. So it's the young people that are sitting there reading this stuff, and they're just like, "Wow, this is a viable solution." 
how can we do this at scale? So, you know, that that's also a piece, you know, for anybody who's like, and I've said this, like uh, people would say, oh, you need to get involved in policy. I'm like, that is not my thing, not my thing, you know? And then when I went into those offices, I was like, God, these are just a bunch of awesome 20 something year old kids who they care so much. They've got family members with all kinds of diseases. They're talking about food. They want to figure out how to be a solution. So well, that's what my wife, Carol said, We, we were lucky enough to go see several of these staffers the day before I testified. And we got done at the end of the day, Carol said the country's being ran by a bunch of 25-year-olds. Totally. She's totally right, you know, and they're doing the heavy lifting. And so, you know, as as great as, you know, that information is that we can get to those staffers is, you know, then what goes up the chain. She is 100% right. And so I think, you know, people say like, oh, it feels really intimidating. It's like you will walk into that office. It's going to be just an army of 25-year-olds who want to change the world, you know, and um, a lot of energy. That's a great energy, you know, and so it's like, let's make sure that we're informing them. And I think you really don't uh, underestimate the power at that local level. Yeah, I've got a a comment here from Ludmila. Rick, what do you think about making your own liquid bio fermented fertilizers the way the South American farmers do? I'm not Ludmila, I'm not exactly sure on how they do it in South America, but we do have uh, Johnson Sioux bioreactors running right now and they will be ready to extract by early to mid-April of next year. So uh, I don't know if, if that's a fertilizer, but uh, it's going to be a, a bunch of biology that we're going to introduce um, probably probably in furrow and seed treatment both. And maybe if we can get the timing right to do a foliar uh, application as well. So that's what we're going to start with. But Ludmila, I'd love to, to know more about what you mean by liquid bio fermented fertilizers. So please reach out to me. Um, and then the other so- thing I will say, Rick, is like, we've got you, we've got Gabe, you know, we've got Mitchell Aura of Understanding Ag, you know, we've got yeah. John Kemp. I mean, there are all these, these great guys. And, you know, what we're starting to see is guiding culture who's part of you know regenerative buffalo and you know he's he's in that same tension all of you guys are where it's like he's got to be running his own operations and then he just has this complete calling as an educator to really sort of get out there and teach and preach this and so he's in that tension of like wow my family needs me here on the farm and you know this is so important and i know i can teach it and then we've got paul grieve who's with pasture bird which is a division of purdue and Paul's been phenomenal of what he's been teaching about what we can actually do with chickens and poultry. And I think, you know, look to these examples of inspiration and, you know, we can't all be Rick going to DC and doing these things, but within your community, you've you've spoken before about these coffee talks and people just getting together, you know, in a casual way. Um, I think people are really hungry for positivity. I think they're really hungry for solutions. I'm with you that we can't sugarcoat it. We've got to be super honest or you're not believable. Um, And so it's, you know, really saying like, this is what was really hard. And here I am now, however many years, saving 2 million bucks on the inputs. Yeah. Yeah. And, and the other way I like to look at that too, Robin is because I've, I've lived it all. I mean, we've written million dollar checks for, for, for chemistry, you know, and then when you think about it's not it's not only the savings thing it's the peace of mind because see when you think about a farmer in the midwest that farmers the convention that farms the conventional way like we're going to say you know i don't know if that's the right term but tillage chemistry fertility all that 
they have typically are done planting by June the 1st, everything. So right. all of that money that they had to borrow for all those inputs is out there in the field at jeopardy and at, at mother nature's whim of if it's gonna rain or not. So now jump over to our side and we've taken all that risk away so we don't have all that front-loaded money invested. We don't have hardly any money invested. And then it just makes it easier to go through the year knowing that, oh my gosh, my corn's got to make 236 bushels to break even this year. That's if the price stays where it is and I'm too scared to sell very much because it hasn't rained in six weeks. So, yeah. I mean, the farmer, I mean, it's just nonstop. About well, I think, you know, yeah. listening to you, it's, it's the, as you change the behavior, instead of being, you know, in this sort of group think and this one size fits all mentality and this is the way it's always done. I'm going to put all this money in the field. I'm just going to pray. Right. Really. Cause that's all you can do. What we're saying is how do you actually empower the yeah. grower? Yeah. Because once you've done that, you've given away your power. Like it's in the ground, you've invested, like, and you just pray that, you know, all these elements are actually going to work in your favor as opposed to managing it in a much more incremental way, which actually empowers the grower financially, economically, empowers yeah. you on the farm and allows you to deal with the circumstances as they actually happen. Yeah. And then they, they become more self-sufficient right. and they become less reliable. I mean, the, look at the, uh, look at the transportation in this. I mean, if you couldn't picture a, a more perfect storm than what we've got going on around the world right now, I mean, Putin is in war with Ukraine. The, the Europeans are going to be out of, out of gas to heat their homes. We don't have any rain here uh, in the West, and then South America's been dry, Europe's been dry. Well, now, the Prime Minister of the UK just resigned after six weeks, you yeah, know? Yeah. You. And yeah. now the Mississippi's at levels they can't transport. I mean, it's just nuts. Yeah. I mean, how much and rain? So, and it, it really, like, largely, it's been largely self-inflicted. So, you know, to really, we can, we can, we can stop and we can say, you know, the systems, all of these systems that we've inherited are not working in the 21st century. Yeah. And I don't think, you know, that it was bad people designing them. They were just designing them under different circumstances without any kind of visibility into what could possibly be where we are today. Yeah. And so, you know, like, I mean, I've made some noise, but at this point, it's like that finger wagging. It's a complete waste of our time and energy where we stand in the 21st century requires courage, collaboration, creativity. And that's really the opportunity, I think, in front of us yeah. today. Um, and I, you know, again, it's like, you can argue all day long, you know, and yes, that way of farming did work for several years and several decades, but where we are today with the volatility and weather and the volatility and climate, water security issues, um, yeah. labor security yeah. issues, yeah. My chain. Energy costs, I mean, we are on a totally different landscape. And the parallel I give always is, you know, the landscape of the health of our families changed and that yeah. required the food industry to change. The yeah. landscape, the literal landscape of that farm has changed. You guys are operating under totally different circumstances than your grandfather's. Yeah. And, you know, that requires, that requires adaptation. And I think, 
um, I'm grateful for you because you have this complete alignment of your head and your heart in this. Um, yeah. You have an amazing family behind you to support you. Oh, yeah. um, and I think, you know, you're just, you're a beautiful teacher in this space and in this movement for so many of us. And um, I'm really, really glad that the guys in DC have figured out who you are and picked you up and, you know, brought you out there. And I hope they continue to, and I know that's a big demand on your time, but I really do think um, you're an incredible, you're an incredible ambassador for all of us in this. Well, thank you. Thank you. Sometimes I, sometimes I wonder locally because, like, like I described earlier in the in the podcast, our fields don't look quite desirable. So I feel like I'm not being a good ambassador. But, but that's it's, how it's yeah. about. You know, at this point, I think you know that's part of that conditioning we've all got to unlearn. Is it? Yeah. You know, it's not what you see on top that matters. It's what's the magic that's happening underneath. Yeah. Yeah. That's right. That's right. That's right. So do we well, have any final questions? Appreciate everybody who's been chiming in. Yeah, this has been great Q&A. Thanks, thanks everyone. If we are probably gonna cut this off, I think Robin's gotta get going. Um, now, this was kind of a prelude because I'd like to have, I'm gonna do more of the, I've had Mitchell Hora be a, a host. I've had Lauren Steinlogge. Robin's gonna host here um, sometime in the near future. I wanna move this around to my friends because I, and I'm going to talk to Carol. I'd like, I'd like for my wife to do one. Uh, she doesn't know that yet, but I'm going to talk to her about it. Um, I want to bring different people in, different ideas. You know, I've got, I've got, um, I want to get a financial planner on because this is important. I want to get, I want to get a person on that does estate planning because yeah. this is important. How do you hand the farm off to the next yeah. generation? I mean, this is all important stuff. Oh, totally. Yeah. I mean, this so, is like estate planning for the country and our food supply couldn't be more important. Yeah. yeah. Especially with what we've just seen in Ukraine and Russia. Yeah. So, Robin, I want you to come on and be a guest host because I want you to bring maybe maybe that that PepsiCo person or that Unilever person that I couldn't get on. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, you know what I mean? I think too, you know, I think, you know, there really are some people inside these multinationals that really, really get it. And they're pretty terrified too. Um, and the frustration and the tension that they see of like, you know, just as a farmer was told to only focus on yield, the corporates are told to only focus on profitability and they know tension, like that's, that's, that's their pain point, yeah. you know? So um, I do think having some of those voices come forward because it's pretty easy to slap a label on those guys and say they're all bad and they're all corporate. But inside these companies, um, are oh, people yeah. that are, you know, like these lone wolves really trying to drive change, you know, up, upstream inside the corporates as well. Yep. That's right. That's exactly right. So, uh, Lude Myla, thank you. 40 acre challenge needs to happen. Huh? We'll totally. I love it. I want to see what I can do. I'll we'll jump do off. This and... hey, you've got that green, it's called green money, right? Those people, yeah, are like, you know, and I do, I think like, I mean, just think about all the different things that the government hands money out for, you know, and it's like to have these 40 acre challenges happening around the country would be amazing. I mean, it would just be, it's like, it'd just be amazing. Yeah. It'd be awesome. I mean, yeah, I love it. I, I just came, it just came to me the other day. So let's, yeah. let's, make, it. let's make it happen. Okay. Rick, I'll see you soon. Thanks, Rick. Rick. Rick's 40 acre challenge. There you go. Okay. Okay. Thanks everyone. Have a great evening. We'll see you next time. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.